Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. Good afternoon, Will. Good afternoon, Gordon. Good to be here with you. Another episode of Notes from the Field. Yes, sir. Yeah. A fun topic today, a a phrase or a a title that you and I think both ascribe to ourselves, uh, this idea of of naturalists. Uh, yeah, and yeah. we have to be careful with that word. We do. If you drop <laughs> drop yeah. the T, there Cap- could be some problems. Cap. Well, capital N, uh, naturalism, means that you can't attribute any supernatural agency. So kind of synonymous with materialism well, as yes. a philosophy. Um, yes, um, that can, as a philosophy. But naturalism in sort of an outdoorsy sense is just really enjoying understanding nature, understanding secondary cause effects. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily imply that there is no creator, but you know, it's good to make that distinction. Absolutely. Uh, Naturalist as someone who likes to be outdoors and eat dirt cookies rather than (laughs) someone who wants to explain away God. Um, Absolutely. I love those dirt cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's really great. Yeah, I've got a little quote here. Maybe I'll start with it if it's okay, just yeah. to kind of introduce this idea of of becoming a naturalist. And this was uh, really, to me, in my mind, um, I just, I love the idea of understanding nature, understanding God's creation. And so one of my hero naturalists that my dad introduced me to, and I think he's given me two or three copies of this book just to make sure I have it still, um, is uh, A Practical Guide for the Amateur Naturalist by Gerald Durrell. Uh, who you and I both have enjoyed yes. um, over the years. And, and Durrell says this in his one of his first chapters on becoming a naturalist. He says, all of us are born with an interest in the world about us. Watch a human baby or any other young animal crawling about. It is investigating and learning things with all its senses of sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. From the moment we are born, we are explorers in a complex and fascinating world. That's great. So that's kind of his introduction to what a naturalist is. Yeah. And so many kids in elementary school are just naturally naturalists. Yeah. And it's inherent. It's, it's, it's inherent. It's innate for many kids there. But I think a lot of times it's just trained out. Maybe it's a matter of parents, particularly moms that are too fastidious about the cleanliness of the home. And then they sort of put a damper on that innate desire to explore and bring in Critters yeah. and it's like, get that thing out of here. <laughs> Don't, you know, finding slugs I'm, in pockets. I'm all for house <laughs> rules. I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, we have to make sure that we don't squelch that innate naturalist in so many kids. Yeah. I'm not saying all, but many kids, even kids that grow up to be, you know, CPAs and engineers have had that phase where they like to go out and catch frogs and yeah. snakes and all sorts of other things to their parents' chagrin. Absolutely. So were there any, uh, do you remember anything your parents did in particular that helped cultivate this you? In know, you they didn't or? really cultivate it. They just didn't squelch it. Yeah. They, um, you know, mom wasn't keen on me bringing in snakes, but she, she let me have a gerbil. 
you know, I had some turtles and usually we didn't have good enough terraria, you know, we didn't have the funds to have a secure terrarium. It was mostly cardboard box yeah. for a garter snake outside. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, and putting putting just some old screen window over the top and yeah. weighing it down with rocks. That was sort of my terrarium yep. in a cardboard box. And then I usually would cut out a piece of turf. So it was actually real grass growing in the bottom of my cardboard box nice but nothing Plush aesthetic conditions. yeah nothing aesthetic uh as far as something you could bring inside you know yeah. with a soggy box <laughs> soggy <laughs> bottomed box yeah so, my dad went to bat my dad went to bat for me and let me get a i was able to get a snake he 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 won that one out with mom mom was terrified of snakes mm -hmm. um and i'll just share a little snippet here uh, i had an eastern king snake it was beautiful oh yeah they're just beautiful. That, that white and black banding yep and um, I had a terrible habit as a young person of sleepwalking. And my room was in the basement. I could walk right out the back to the wild, to the woods, and it was a fabulous place. But uh, my tendency to sleepwalk turned into some interesting, um, <laughs> interesting tales. And one tale was that I, for some reason, the, uh, the humanitarian, I wanted to liberate this snake in my sleep. And so I would oh, open no. its lid. Oh, no. And this began in the winter. And I would find the snake, thankfully, under the wood stove, curled up, staying warm. But then I did it one spring and never saw never it again. Never saw it again. Yeah. And there were yeah. tales in the neighborhood, of course, of the massive black and white snake. Right. That supposedly was out there still. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. But no, I, you're exactly right. Not squelching. That's, mm -hmm. so, that's so true in parenting. Really just seeing a tendency and allowing it to keep going. Mm -hmm. Don't have to necessarily make a big plan to cultivate it. But yep. you're allowing that child to seek their natural inclination and curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. So, I know you have some favorite naturalists. Hard to pick. There's so many good there, ones. There are. Yeah. And so, there are many good, like you said, there's many good naturalists. But uh, I want to combine someone who's a good naturalist with someone who's very gifted at writing. Yeah. And um, so, one of my favorites, I was introduced to him a few years ago. Um, well, I'd heard about his book for years. Uh, it's a classic in, in uh, American literature. It's uh, Sand County Almanac uh, yeah. by Aldo Leopold. And I've read the book a couple times, maybe, maybe even three. And it's, it's just marvelous. There's so many good quotes. And I, I just want to read a couple excerpts and try to give you a little context. He was a chair of game management in the University of Wisconsin back in the 40s. And, um, you know, he was more of the old school conservationist. So not this radical idea that animals have just as many rights as people do. There was enough of the inertia of a Judeo-Christian ethic, I think, in his blood that made him realize that it wasn't wrong to hunt. In fact, many of the early conservationists were hunters. Yeah. The Boone and Crockett Club. And so this, this quote is, is talking about the woodcock. Oh, what a creature. And just this wonderful quote is just talking about this notion that you can hunt and love nature. Mm -hmm. And when you, you're a hunter with, with really no concern about 
the ecology or understanding the ecology, then then it can be problematic because you can just scratch that itch and blow everything out of the. But generally, circumspect hunters really want to maintain, to sustain whatever it is that they enjoy. Right. And this really captures that. The woodcock is a living refutation of the theory that the utility of a game bird is to serve as a target or to pose gracefully on a slice of toast. (laughs) No one would rather hunt woodcock in October than I. But since learning of the sky dance, I find myself calling one or two birds enough. I must be sure that come April, there will be no dearth of dancers in the sunset sky. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And I I thought you'd like that because you love birds. I love woodcocks. And the other thing, this excerpt from him is wonderful in terms of conserving a species because of its just its intrinsic value. Yep. And he's just talking about, yes, you can, there's a value, say, in a piece of art, but what's the replacement value? Hmm. Okay. And he's talking, comparing living creatures to, say, a work of art. Well. Which is a theme that you. Uh, yeah, it, it is. But he's basically saying works of art can maybe re- be replaced, but, you know, a species, a distinct species. Not so cannot. easy. Now, he was, a, he was a Midwesterner and he loved geese and ducks and things like that. And he said, um, uh, he's talking again about, uh, well, he's saying worth in dollars is only an exchange value like the sale value of a painting or the copyright of a poem. What about the replacement value? Supposing there were no longer any painting or poetry or goose music. Now, he's referring to goose music as... You know what you hear, the honking over there. It is a black thought to dwell upon, but it must be answered. In dire necessity, somebody might write another Iliad or paint an Angelus, but fashion a goose? I, the Lord, will answer them. The hand of the Lord hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel created it. Ah. So you can see that... That's um, rich. It is rich because here he is, he's lauded by secularist as this this pillar of modern american conservation and yet you see these glimpses you know secularists don't quote these passages right and yeah and who um, do, who does he resort to as authority there yeah that's, he's that's talking fabulous. about how god created this thing now he i suppose was uh, an evolutionist of sorts cuz he was at a state school the 40s okay but he definitely this, this last quote that I'll read you is something that really reveals his theism hmm. and maybe Christian theism. Hmm. What value has wildlife from the standpoint of morals and religion? I heard of a boy once, and I think, I'm, I think he's talking about himself, like Paul the Apostle. <laughs> I, I heard of a boy once who was brought up an atheist. He changed his mind when he saw that there were a hundred odd species of warbler, each bedecked like to the rainbow, and each performing yearly sundry thousands of miles of migration about which scientists wrote wisely but did not understand. 
No fortuitous concourse of elements working blindly through any number of millions of years could quite account for why warblers are so beautiful. No mechanistic theory, even bolstered by mutation, has ever quite answered for the colors of the cerulean warbler or the vespers of the wood thrush or the swan song or goose music. I dare say this boy's conviction would be harder to shake than those of many inductive theologians. There are yet many boys to be born who, like Isaiah, may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this. But where shall they see and know and consider? In museums? Wow. <laughs> Man, you really mined some gems there. Yeah, the, That's an the, incredible quote. Yeah. The, oh. And so I really highly recommend San County Almanac. I read it in college and just have looked at it in snippets over the years, but I obviously need to get back in there. Yeah. That's fabulous. So any more on you, on your end? Yeah. I mean, I would just love to riff on, on Leopold for a minute. He really is the foundation or, or the father of wildlife biology. Mm -hmm. A lot of people credit him with this idea of yeah. wildlife management. And obviously his convictions are deep. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of material there. And, you know, it, what you're doing is you're making the case that there's a theistic basis for wildlife management yeah, that's built into the state system. Yeah. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. They, the hardcore naturalist, as in the philosophical net, that says that there is no God, then this whole idea of an environmental ethic to, you know, they'll, they'll come up with, try, try to come up with all sorts of ecological reasons why, well, you know, it is our life support system. And if we, if uh, things go extinct, well, we're sort of undermining our own existence. And okay, but you're only looking at it pragmatically. You're not looking at it from what is this an absolute wrong or is this just practically speaking a bad thing to do because we might go extinct and there's a lot of um there's a lot of uh redundancy in nature and so ecosystems at a certain point will implode but they are not irreducible complexities right you can things can go extinct and and that and ecosystem it, it can, can and persist it, and it can persist right it's just not as nice right Absolutely. And so we need to look at the intrinsic value and that intrinsic value can only for for creatures that intrinsic value can only be if if something higher than us says it's good. Hmm. And if if values of the value of creatures is only uh something that's ginned up in our own mind. Well there's there's no absolute basis for that. Yeah. You know, it's just your word over, you know, you have to really rally a lot of troops together to say, we want to conserve this, but uh, there's probably more that say, who cares? We want to build, develop in such a way that who cares if this particular animal or plant goes extinct. Right. Because the money, money is what speaks. Yeah. So no, you find that in, that's, Mid-century naturalists are, uh, uh, man, Leopold's such a great example. And there are a lot of others extending back into the, into the 19th century as well. And, you know, I'm reminded that uh, today, uh, you know, if, if you were to take your standard naturalist today, he might, in replacing some of those lines 
you might pay homage to probably pay homage to evolutionary theory, you right. know, in some <clears throat> attempt at being eloquent. Yeah. Um, but it just rings hollow. It, it rings hollow. They'll, they'll say, oh, in this wonderful millions of years of evolution created this wonderful thing. But, you know, they'll say that it's just all accident. Right. And if it's, it's a all, gift from I, the universe yeah. to us. But it's not even a gift. It's not meant to be a gift. It's not meant for anything. We evolved by accident. It evolved that. All the, all the critters around us evolved by accident. Now, we might like it, but we have nothing, no handles to grab a hold of. No handles that, at all. That says we need to conserve this. Yeah. The only thing an evolutionist can do is we need to conserve this because I like it or other practical reasons. But if. And communication yeah. falls apart, too. We can't, we can't even, we can't even describe something and adhere to that philosophy because we're going to inherently use design language. Mm -hmm. We can't help it. We can't get outside of anthropomorphism right. and design language and analogy. We're right. made to use those literary devices. Right. And, and the, all of the warm fuzzies and aesthetic feelings that we get, the, the, the feelings of beauty and all of the, those are just, just chemical reactions in right. the brain. Who cares, you know? And the number of people that actually function in daily life and, and, and believe it that deeply is very low. Right. So it's just a, ma like you pointed out at the beginning, a massive philosophical gap mm -hmm. um, or disconnect. They, they can't really justify that. They'll say, we want it, we want it, we want it. And I agree, I want it too. But they don't really have an evolutionary worldview just doesn't give them an absolute environmental ethic or a basis for it. Yeah. They may have one, but it's not based on anything, it has no anchor points. So I'll just read a snippet here. And, and this might yeah. turn into a two-part episode, um, but one of my favorite naturalists, um, and I'll get to in a second, um, but just a little bit to kind of uh, help. Uh, so maybe you're asking out there, what does the naturalist actually do? Does he kind of inherently know what's happening in nature? And so he talks about it, he writes about it. Um, and so maybe just to fill in that, that question a little bit, naturalists' unique task is one of interpretation. Just as our gifted theologians take on the critical task of correctly applying a hermeneutic to scripture, mm -hmm. the naturalist attempts to explain the goings-on in the field and hedgerows, in the reef and jungle, in the boreal forest and the backyard. This is an important and underappreciated ancestor of our modern scientific process and more specifically of biology and ecology. And that interp word, you know, their, their interpretation is so important in, the, in kind of the history and hierarchy mm -hmm. of wildlife biology. Where I went to college, there was actually, you could get an, you, there was a class on environmental interpretation. Right. There was an environmental education major and they all had to take this interp class, they'd call it. Uh, interpreting, interpreting nature, making sense of what's going on. Right. Yeah. So, for example, just um, checking to see if I know what you yeah, mean by Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, I think I've heard the term, like, um, see a, a, a sawn stump and I see algae grow, not lichen, but algae, green algae growing on the sapwood of the cut surface. Yeah. But not in the heartwood. And so natural interp or yeah, what's you're, the you're environmental you're, interpretation? Yeah, environmental okay. interpretation. Yep. Um, you're basically saying, okay, the heartwood has various chemicals that have been transported to the interior of the tree that prevent their resins and other metabolic waste products that prevent 
algal growth and the sapwood doesn't have those chemicals and yeah. so it's free to grow in this on the sapwood yeah. area that's a great example that is that an example yeah you might be walking with someone who's a, a bit of a naturalist in the field and they they might point that out to you so it's kind of a a bit of the the knowledge you're carrying there in your hip sack right. applied to the natural world that you're right. experiencing in front of you or yeah trying to figure out why are those acorns stuck in those holes yeah. all over the tree yep you haven't seen the culprit that's right. But environmental interpretation tells you, okay, an acorn woodpecker. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the fruit, um, really kind of the fruits of that type of work, uh, we see interpretation in museums, recreations mm -hmm. of, of, of the natural world, or on certain hiking trails. If you're on a hiking trail, like uh, one of our uh, local county trails has signs along the way that kind of uh, give you some hints and insights of the goings on in, mm -hmm. the, in the natural world there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the woodcock is such a remarkable uh, creature. Have you ever seen the sky dance? So, uh, yeah, you're going to get me going here, and I apologize for being long-winded. Um, the woodcock, I was introduced to the woodcock my junior year of college in central Wisconsin, and we would go out to this marsh uh, north of town um, right around dusk, a little bit before dusk, and, um, and sneak into the woods. And these are kind of woods with open wet meadows in between them. Uh, any woodland in the in the uh, Midwest or Eastern U.S. Uh, that that uh, surrounded by woods, woodland with meadows uh, inside of it, rather, uh, is good habitat for a woodcock. And so woodcocks are strange. They're a woodland sandpiper, which is kind of an oxymoron for most of us. Right. One of a couple of different varieties of woodland sandpiper. And so we would we'd go to the spot that was well known in our kind of College of Natural Resources crowd, and and we would listen. And we'd hear this whistling of wings up, up in the sky. And then we'd hear the whistling get lower and lower pitched as it descended towards us. And then uh, eventually you'd, the whistling would stop and you'd hear this beep, beep. And the woodcock had landed. And he'd landed and he was doing his little terrestrial part of the dance. And so we'd, we'd eyeball him or try to eyeball him because it was getting dark. And we'd wait for him to take off. And he'd take off and we'd hear him above. Again, and then we'd run to the spot where we think he took off from and hide. And then he'd come back down and land almost the exact same spot. And so we'd try to get as close as we right. could and observe his sky dance. That's great. And so I actually named um, my oldest son's middle name is Skydance after the Woodcock wow. uh, courtship display. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And yeah. I, rose, I did that quote without knowing Hey, that. it's a, a divinely <clears throat> planned very good. So give us some more naturalist well, yeah, quotes here. A, give us one more. This is one more from Rachel Carson. She's uh, famous for writing the, the f infamous uh, book, The Silent Spring. And yeah. I won't get into that right now. But one of her natural history books called The Edge of the Sea, she's going down. It's on the East Coast. And she's going down on a rocky, rocky shore on the East Coast. I forget what state. And... She's coming down to a cave with a tide pool in it. Hmm. And uh, just an excerpt there. And so I knelt on the wet carpet of sea moss and looked back into the dark cavern that held the pool in a shallow basin. The floor of the cave was only a few inches below the roof. And a mirror had been created in which all that grew on the ceiling was reflected in the still water below. Underwater, that was clear as glass, the pool was carpeted with green sponge. Gray patches of sea squirts glistened on the ceiling, and colonies of soft coral were a pale apricot color. In the moment when I looked into the cave, a little elfin 
starfish hung mm-hmm. down, suspended by the merest thread, perhaps by only a single tube foot. It reached down to touch its own reflection, so perfectly delineated that there might have been not one starfish, but two. The beauty of the reflected images and the limpid pool itself was the poignant beauty of things that are ephemeral, existing only until the sea should return to fill the little cave. So the reason why I like good natural history is often we've seen, uh, you saw the sky dance, I've seen tidal pools. I didn't see that exact thing. But what's wonderful is if you're out in the woods a lot, but you don't necessarily have the words to clothe your experiences with. Yeah. Okay. And you read someone who has experienced nature and a lot of maybe some some of the same species and same kind of ecosystems, but they write it down in a way that moves you and brings it all back to you in a way that your remembrance of it is greatly enhanced mm-hmm. by the ly- the lyrical prose of this author. Yeah. And what we need is just people who are really well-educated, not only in the sciences, but also in writing. Absolutely. And so that they can combine this love of nature and can capture their experiences in nature in wonderful prose. We need more Christians like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one thing that classical education strives for. And maybe an example would be, and a take-home could be, you know, if you're going on a family trip and you uh, have a destination, hey, grab a couple old books uh, that someone wrote about that region. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember going to Yosemite and taking with me John John Muir's Yosemite. Yeah. And it made them experience so much more uh, just vibrant oh, yeah. and uh, enhanced, that's, as that's you said. That's another naturalist I didn't have with me today, but yeah. we'll definitely probably need to do part two. Absolutely. Good talking with you today, Gordon. Yeah, good talking to you, Will. I'll see you next time. We'll see you.